Are there many different ways of uh, using the actuality of death and ending as a form of contemplation? And uh, mostly they are to do with hoping to get a perspective on self-view, the habits of identification of I'm the body, I'm the personality, this is who and what I am. But uh, So this death rehearsal is one particular exercise I found uh, uh, very helpful and uh, led this a number of times over the years. The, uh, you, you don't find it spelled out in this way in the Pali Canon, but uh, the various aspects of, of that are certainly part of the classical contemplations and reflections uh, on death and dying. Earlier on in, the, in this retreat, I was talking about the five subjects of frequent recollection. I am of the nature to age, I am of the nature to sicken, I am of the nature to die. And how, even though that might sound gloomy or depressing, <laughs> the point is to highlight those habits of attachment. So when we clearly and consciously say, I am of the nature to die, then it also helps to awaken that intuition, that uh, uh, innate wisdom of the heart that says, hang on a minute, <laughs> that's, that's not the whole story. That, uh, yeah, this, uh, that which is born is going to die, but that which is unborn and undying, it's, it's outside of that domain. Like uh, 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 that comment that Ajahn Chah made, I just quoted, it was a, an elderly woman came from a, a, a distant province and uh, she'd heard of Ajahn Chah's reputation as a great teacher. And she came to visit him and she said, you know, I'm, I'm getting old and my life is coming to an end. And um, so I am seeking some advice for how to handle it, how to work with it as death approaches. And uh, Ajahn Chah was very blunt with her. I guess he, in, he intuited she had the spiritual... Uh, capacity or, or wisdom to to get a, a very straight teaching, and he said, you know, "Don't talk in terms of aging and death. Those who speak of birth and death, they're, they're using the language of ignorant children. Nobody's born, nobody dies, and speaking in that way is is uh, very much a, a dhamma desna, a demonstration of dhamma, speaking from that place of of the reality of the the heart, speaking from that place of, of dhamma itself." from that, that point of view of, of uh, reality, there isn't really a, any individual independent being who is actually born and who actually dies. It seems that way. <laughs> we've all got birthdays <laughs> and we've all probably attended funerals. And so on the worldly level, on the, the conditioned uh, plane of existence, birth and death certainly seem to appear. And as I mentioned in that um, unfortunate aerogram that I sent to my mother that she wasn't really my mother, you know, that uh, all beings, uh, all things are not self. So uh, when, when that kind of a statement is made, it's speaking from that place of, of Dhamma itself. It's the, the, the fundamental nature of the heart. The mind is Dhamma, it's not a person. So there's a, a great clarity, great wisdom coming from a uh, a great teacher like, like Ajahn Chah. It's not just clever words, it's not just an idea, it's like, <laughs> like he, he's speaking the truth. Like when, when uh, the Buddha was um, sitting meditating in the forest one time 
and uh, a Brahmin called Dona had been uh, following along the same road that the Buddha had been walking, and he saw the footprints in the dust of the road, and he thought, wow, who made these footprints? They're extraordinary. They are the, the lines on the soles of the feet there, and these, these incredible patterns, like these perfectly circular wheels and these different uh, images on, from the soles of this, this, this being's feet. Who can this be? So he followed the, the, the footprints in the dust off the trail and into the forest, and he saw the Buddha sitting meditating under a tree, and he was, again, like Upaka, he thought, wow, you know, <laughs> who is that? <laughs> Could see the Buddha meditating, this extraordinary quality of peace and serenity and radiance. So he went and, uh, and knelt in front of the Buddha, and then when the Buddha opened his eyes and the, the Brahmin said, excuse me, but... Um, are, are you a deva? And he said, no, I'm not a deva. Said, well, are you a Brahma god? He said, no, I'm not a Brahma god. Are you a yaksha, a, a celestial demon? He said, no, I'm not a yaksha. He said, are you a person, Man, uh, Manasodhi? Yeah. He said, no, I'm not a person. <laughs> so a Buddha cannot tell a lie. So face to face, he says, are you a manusa? He says, no. That whereby I could be known as a Manusa or a Deva or a Brahma or a Yaka, that has been cut off at the root, made like a palm stump, deprived of the conditions for existence and rendered incapable of arising in the future. So then Dona says, well, uh, so um, what are you? And then the phrase in the Pali, I'm not sure in the Sanskrit, but in the Pali, the phrase that the Buddha uses is Buddhoti Mantareta. Uh, you can hold me as one who is awake, or that which is awake, buddhoti. Buddho means awake, aware. So it's one of the reasons why we use the word Buddha to refer to the great teacher, is that, that very encounter, and how he defined himself. And so that face-to-face, -face, when asked, you know, are you a human being? He said, no. <laughs> but, and he can't lie. It's impossible for a Buddha to, to tell a lie. When told, you know, asked, are you a human? He was born of human parents. You know, King Sudodna Mahamaya in, uh, in Kapilavatu, born in Lumbini. Um, so born of human parents, and there's a breathing human body that needed to breathe and to eat and, to, and was subject to the laws of nature. But uh, when asked, are you a human being? Nope. <laughs> so at that same point, the Buddha is speaking from that place uh, of Dhamma itself, from that ultimate reality that the the mind, the heart, the chitta is dhamma, it's not a person, it's not a manusa, it's not an individual. And it's difficult to get the mind around these principles, but I do feel to make the best of a weak contemplating self-view, we get a sense for that, that quality, that it's not that I, you know, I, have got a, I have got a mind that is made of dhamma, that's what I've got. <laughs> it's like, no, the, the, it's not me realizing the Dhamma, it's the Dhamma realizing the me. <laughs> it's the other way around. It's not it's you waking up to the Dhamma, it's the Dhamma waking up to that you-ness, me-ness, I-ness and me-ness and minus coming and going and changing. I would say that's what's happening in the, in the development of insight and the mind getting perspective on self-view. And that's why, again, going back a few days, Ajahn Sumaita, rather than saying, putting things in the, in the paradigm of me and my problems, or me doing something now to become enlightened in the future, it's, yeah, here's the Buddha mind awake to the way things are. Uh, rather than me, me and my problems, me and my practice, here's the, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. And, you know, Buddha with a small b, I would say. <laughs> but uh, 
uh, hopefully the uh, this is uh, say understandable so these contemplations of de of death uh, and dying are to highlight those areas of attachment where that which is unborn undying that dimension of of our being which is unborn undying which has got nothing to do with birth and death can be more uh, clearly actualized can can function in an unobstructed way can can know clearly so uh, another of the classical teachings on on death is the uh, the imminence again uh, as i was quoting um the mahabharata yudhishthira um having the dialogue with uh, the the voice uh, this this pond the, the other pandava brothers the, f the four other brothers have drunk from this pond and have all conked out dead on the on the bank and yudhishthira comes along and realizes hmm my four brothers are dead <laughs> something's happened here and then when the the, the voice uh, i think it's a heron it speaks to a heron that's uh, on the on the bank of the pond starts uh, saying you know you need to answer some questions otherwise uh, if you drink that water you'll die and the others will remain dead so uh, and amidst those many many questions uh, over a hundred questions that uh, Yudhishthira gets asked there's this question of what's the most strange and marvelous thing in the world and he says the most strange and marvelous thing in the world is that even though every single one of us will enter the gates of death we all think that it won't happen to us and we certainly won't think it'll happen today <laughs> right so uh, when the Buddha was asked, uh, well, he was in an assembly of, of people. Uh, one version of this teaching you find in the Pali, there's a slightly different version in the, the Chinese uh, Tripitaka in the sutra called the Sutra of 42 Sections. It's, it's uh, similar uh, material. So the Buddha's in an assembly and he asks, uh, how long is a human lifespan? And you know, one of the monks says, uh, 70 years, Venerable Sir. He says, you don't understand my teaching. Um, 60 years, no. 50 years, 40, 30, 20, 10 years, no, you don't understand. Five years, four years, three years, two years, one year, you don't understand my teaching. Half a year, one, uh, three months, one month, half a month, one week. Uh, Venerable Sir, we can't expect to live more than a day and a night. No, you don't understand my teaching. The, the time it takes to eat a meal, you don't understand my teaching. <laughs> and finally, it gets down to the last one who says, um, we can expect to live the time it takes to go from the beginning to the end of an in-breath or the, from the beginning to the end of an out-breath or the time it takes to swallow some food that you have already chewed which is about three or four seconds if you time it <laughs> uh, usually for most people and the Buddha said you understand my teaching that's our reasonably uh, expected lifespan is three or four seconds and medically, that's quite accurate. If any one of us had an aneurysm right now, you'd have about three seconds as everything goes dark and you start crunching to the floor. You've got about three or four seconds to get ready. <laughs> so I found that an extremely helpful teaching. And I use it daily, actually, to be honest. Um, whenever I, I did a lot of resting yesterday, suddenly my, well, my tube started gushing fluid, as you probably noticed at the end of the, the sitting yesterday afternoon. As soon as I rang the bell, my, my nose started leaking. And then um, my eyes, my, my nose were kind of pouring with, with snot and tears and such like last night. Great, gratefully, it seems to have cleared up through this morning. So I did a lot of resting, but my uh, regular practices, uh, as particularly 
as I put my head down to, to, to rest, I reflect, you know, each breath, this could be the last out-breath. There's no guarantee there's going to be an in-breath after this. I do this every day. I mean, no, that's not an exaggeration, I don't think. <laughs> it's a, a daily practice. Okay, there's an out-breath. Will there be an in-breath? Don't know. So I use this as a, as a, a daily practice. Okay, what remains to be done? What, what's on my list of things to do? <laughs> what's the unfinished business? And so... Personally, I use this very actively as a, as a practice to keep perspective because uh, when you, you have a life with a lot of, you know, a lot of people, uh, have a lot of responsibilities, I found it's particularly useful, particularly important to, to be not carrying things around. As I said, uh, you know, I'm on about 20 committees, there's about 70 people live at Amravati Monastery, so I've got, I've got a family of 70 that I live with. Uh, that's the home, the home team of Amravati is about 70 people. And, you know, all these different projects going on. Um, and so it's particularly important, I find, to just be ready to let it go every day. Uh, that uh, there's no guarantee that there's going to be another in-breath after that out-breath. So it's not morose or negative or... or, or, or it shouldn't be anxiety-producing. <laughs> let me look at my list. <laughs> What's the absolutely crucial thing I have to get done before I croak? Uh, it's not supposed to be anxiety-producing, but, um, but to give a different perspective and also to keep fresh to that reality. Also, uh, one of the aspects of self-view and that these contemplations of death are, are very helpful for is that along with, like Yudhishthira saying, you know, we all are going to enter the gates of death, but none of us think it's ever going to happen, um, somehow we all feel that we're not expendable. Again, I'm not reading anybody's mind. Uh, it's, it, but it's rare that, um, uh, that we as human beings feel that we, we are all completely expendable. And uh, many, many years ago, when there was, um, uh, maybe 25, 30 years ago, when somebody who was on the, the committee of the monastery had been in that role for a long time, was going to step down and they've been very identified with helping to look after the the stewardship of the monastery and have been very much re respected and a very useful practical person they were going to step out of that role then uh, he very quietly said when you take a boat out of the water it doesn't leave a dent and i thought oh, what <laughs> and then uh, I thought, oh yeah, as the boat is removed from the water, the water fills right in. The, the ocean doesn't have any, have any dent <laughs> in its surface when, when you take a boat out. I thought, that's extremely wise observation. <laughs> because uh, in one way, that person, you, you know, the feeling is, oh, what are we going to do without so-and-so you know, in that role? Uh, it's not going to work. And we can feel that about ourselves, that we're going to leave a dent if we go. <laughs> And, uh, and in, in our languaging, in our kind of, um, uh, again, talking about, oh, I'll miss you so much, or, or you know, Bob Dylan, you're going to make me lonesome when you go, if I remember, way back. In, what was that? Blood on the Tracks was, was released a year or two before I went in the monastery. <laughs> you're going to make me lonesome when you go. Yeah, that, yeah, on an ordinary worldly level, yes, we, we can miss each other or that um, it can, you can have to do a lot of interviews to fill that post on the board or, the, uh, or someone in the family dies, there's a, 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 a sadness. But 
on the level of, of Dhamma, uh, I think that when you take a boat out of the water, it doesn't leave a dent. That's really useful uh, advice. And so the, these kind of contemplations, uh, they're using verbal thought, they're using reflection, you're bringing thoughts to mind. They are, they are um, a way of getting perspective on habitual attachments. And the, the Buddha used a very, a very beautiful term. He said it's like using a thorn to dig out another thorn. Like if you've trodden on a thorn, like a, a sharp spike from a plant, it's stuck in your foot. You, you can use another thorn <laughs> to, to dig it out. So that you're using an idea or a thought or a principle to, <laughs> to the way of digging out the, the thing that the mind is attached to. That, so, well, I am, I'm not expendable. I mean, they, they are going to miss me, and they should, you know, when I go. <laughs> it's like, uh, but, uh, oh, look at that. Uh, yeah, I, re I really feel like I'm someone special. Hmm, interesting. So the, uh, the more that we are able to take these things to heart, to really uh, allow these, uh, these aspects, it prepares us. Um, in our own life, in the family life, in, in our spiritual community, in the workplace, where we are ready to to lose people, for people to go, for ourselves to go, to step out of roles of leadership or responsibility, we're more able to digest that in ourselves. We know that, yes, I'm, I'm technically the abbot or the CEO or the professor or the consultant, but that's just one aspect. It's not really who I'm not really the consultant and really not, not actually truly the head of department, even though it says so on my card. <laughs> you know, that's just ink on, on card. It's just a human agreement. It's nothing really there. So the more that we can digest that for ourselves, then the more we're able to work with those changes in our own life and in the people around us, the, the, the things that we are involved in, in, the, in our different you know, human groups that we're a part of. Uh, and it was also, uh, just to tell another story, um, so in 1996, we opened up the Branch Monastery in California, Abiyakiri Monastery in Northern California in uh, Mendocino County. So it had been a, quite a long run-up to this being opened. I'd first been invited to take on the project of, of starting a monastery in California in it first been launched in about 1990, and it took a few years for things to come together. Finally, we, we moved. We were um, very, um, very appreciative of the great gift of 120 acres of forested land by Venerable Master Xuanhua. He was a student of Master Xuyun, who taught the uh, Who Am I practice. Master Hua was the abbot of a large monastery, city of 10,000 Buddhas, and, and they happened to own this forest, and he donated it to Arjun Sumedho just before he passed away. So we're very grateful to have that, that land, and then we moved on to it. I started getting set up uh, the monastery in June of 1996. In October of 1996, I was diagnosed with melanoma, with uh, skin cancer. First of all, I had seen a mole growing on my shoulder and turning a strange shape, and a couple of doctors in England looked at it and said, don't worry about it. And so then, after we started the monastery in California, then one of the novices who was a, had been a nurse and one of the board of directors was a doctor. They both saw it and they both said, within a very short period of time, you should get that looked at. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I went to go and see the local dermatologist in Ukiah, Dr. McClintock. Those of you who might know Northern California know that a lot of kind of... <laughs> 
countercultural people and kind of freaks and, and uh, interesting, colorful characters with all kinds of ideas and strange views and opinions and perspectives on the universe gather in Northern California. And in Mendocino County, it's kind of them, there are hills that a lot of those countercultural people went into communes and different sets of characters. Anyway, I think Dr. McClintock has seen quite a few colorful characters and so he said, all right, all right, well, you know, what's up? And so I showed him the, the, this mole on my shoulder, and then in one fluid movement, he kind of hardly even looked at it. He said, he said lie down, <laughs> got a camera, took a picture, then got the syringe for the anesthetic and, and uh, took it out right then and there. I thought, he didn't have to think very much about that. <laughs> so he said, I'm going to send this off to the lab, and then we'll find out whether that's malignant or not. The results should come back in, in a week's time. So the previous year one of the, the regular students that had been uh, practicing in our, our group for quite some time had been diagnosed with melanoma and she'd been told she was going to be dead by Christmas. She said it was recurrent melanoma, she'd had it before, it's now come back, there's no treatment possible, this is a, the pathology of melanoma, it's untreatable, it comes back in a, in a very uh, comprehensive way and there's nothing you can do except wait for the end. So I've been counseling her through much of the previous year on that. She then found out she'd been misdiagnosed and she didn't die. <laughs> so that she, she didn't have melanoma the first time, but she did have it the second time. So it was not recurrent, it was ordinary melanoma, not to get lost in too much detail. So anyway, I had this whole kind of melanoma drama of the previous year. And I suddenly, ding, this has got my name on it. It might be malignant or it might not. You know, there are, there are five stages. You know, if it's already stage five, then, you know, kusala dhamma, kusala dhamma. It's, uh, <laughs> it's you know, organize the funeral, but uh, stage one is not too problematic. But there was no telling, because also with, with melanoma, a mole can be quite small at the surface and kind of grown downwards and outwards without you seeing all of it. I learned a lot about melanoma <laughs> in that period. So anyway... The reason I'm telling the story is, so here we are, you know, we started in June, and this is uh, October, so you've only been open a few months. And of course, a brand new place, new, uh, it's, it's uh, 240 acres of forest, and launching this new project, and oh, I might be dead by Christmas. Oh. <laughs> so it was a really good exercise in, well, uh, you know, am I expendable, or what's on my list of things to do, or I, I, what I thought I was going to be doing, and uh, oh, I thought we were in chapter one. <laughs> this could actually be, this could actually be you know, chapter twenty-five, <laughs> close to the the end of the story, and so that was uh, that was a, a very powerful week of of this kind of contemplation of what's on my list of things to do. It, it was true that uh, Ajahn Pasno, who had been the abbot of the International Monastery in Thailand uh, for about 15 years, he was due to come and join me in January. He hadn't arrived yet. So I thought, well, Ajahn Pasno is coming, so I guess he can take over uh, and just look after it by himself. Um, he, he hasn't been here before, but... Uh, but uh, Okay, that's the way it's got to be. But it was a really powerful lesson in you know, that list of what I'm doing, what I'm in the middle of, my, my projects, and, and what seemed so solid and substantial. And then, well, if I'm dead by Christmas, what does that say about this and this and this and this and this? And Okay. <laughs> so that was a, uh, a very, pun intended, a living example <laughs> of uh, 
of um, the way that we can get a different perspective on our priorities and our sense of obligation or our interests um, and our list of things to do and uh, it's challenged it like that as it turned out it was I did have melanoma but it was only a stage one and so that's why uh, I always um, am trying to keep out the sun and have uh, uh, you, usually you see me with a hat of some kind covered up the doctor at the melanoma clinic in San Francisco said, you, you do realize that your clothing choice is a dermatologist's dream. You know, <laughs> ne neck to ankle coverage. He says, most of, my, most of my patients don't dress like this. And so it's the, you're much, much easier. You're, you're way up in the top percentile of responsible patients. Yeah. <laughs> Other people I have to kind of keep threatening with going around in shorts and tank tops and such like so anyway, that there's reflections or using the, the imminence of death as a way to clarify our sense of attachment and identification. And it was, even though there was, uh, there was a sort of, oh, <laughs> how's this going to work if, I, if I'm not around? But then that sense of revealing the presumptions that my mind had, like, it's got to be me who, why has it got to be me? <laughs> well, what are we, we going to do about, we don't have to do anything about X, Y, Z. Oh. Oh, oh. And so it was very revealing. All the stuff that I was carrying around in my program of what I, I thought had to be done. I thought, well, there's a forest. There's a community of people who want a monastery to happen. There'll be at least two monks and one novice here, <laughs> if everybody stays. Okay, if I check out, then it, it can carry on. It's, yeah, it, uh, and all those things that were on my list, well, they're just, th that list can go on the fire with everything else. So it was very liberating. And from that time, then, it, after that uh, very interesting week um, when the lab results came back, then it helped the mind to relate to all those responsibilities and things that were being taken on and projects and what we should do, shouldn't do. Kept it all in a, in a good perspective. Another of the... Um, aspects of, of death contemplation is just looking at, at our, our body uh, in, uh, in different ways, considering it made up of the four elements of earth, water, fire and wind. And uh, those of you who've uh, read the, um, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha's discourse on the foundations of mindfulness and the other primary teachings on, on mindfulness practice, then uh, you're familiar with those kind of words. Air, uh, water element inside, water element outside, it's all just water element. Earth element inside, earth element outside, it's all just earth element. So that's an ordinary, everyday way of looking at our body as we breathe in, yeah, as we, uh, as like so <laughs> tears or, or snot or running out of our face. Then water element inside, water element outside, it's just water element. Looking at the clouds in the sky, oh, it's water element, oh, water element there, and then the blood in our body, water element outside, water element inside, it's just water element. So that way of steadily reframing the, the way that we relate to this body as somehow comes some sort of special, unique, um, personal arrangement, to, to depersonalize it, and again, to be looking at our body in terms of, a, of its place in the, in the natural order, that it's... It's just part of, a, of an organic process. And uh, these, these kind of reflections, uh, fire element inside, fire element outside, it's all just fire element, earth, water, fire, wind, and, uh, and that way. 
also just looking at the body in terms of its fabrication, the, the, the solid elements are bones and muscles and skin. The uh, liquid elements, uh, the you know, blood and the body fluids, uh, the oil in the joints and, and such like. The um, tears, the um, liquids of the body. The gaseous elements, the heat element uh, of the body's temperature, just uh, and then looking at the the body parts as they work and function together: the heart, the lungs, the skin, the bones, the teeth, the eyes, the ears. Just seeing how it's all put together, remembering this is this is an assemblage. It's it's brought. It's a collection of parts brought together that marvelously, usefully, function as an integrated unit, but. They, they are integrated, they have arisen, they've come together, upada, they've, they, they've arisen and they've, they've been put together, and then vayadama, they are subject to dissolution. That which integrates, disintegrates. <laughs> Again, it's not personal, it's not like that uh, when your hair starts to fall out, that, oh, you know, <laughs> this is, something's gone wrong, it's like, no. The, the, the body uh, used to have a lot of hair, now the hair is falling out. It's uh, that which integrated, disintegrates. That, uh, nothing has gone wrong. It's, it's uh, an ordinary part of nature. And to uh, use, uh, uh, also, if you remember, if you're a doctor, that's very helpful. <laughs> if you're, or you remember your, uh, your school biology lessons and just uh, recollection of how the body's put together, just uh, bringing that to mind, you know, the, your digestion. Uh, how many of us think of the journey of our food after, after lunch? You know, after that last mouthful goes down, bus, finish. But it's got a long way to go. It's got an incredible adventure through the, the whole digestive process. It's some amazing, miraculous kind of stuff that happens in your stomach and through the small intestine. I did a degree in physiology, so I've got a little bit of a background in this. And uh, it's kind of amazing uh, how, the bo- how the body works and how many billions of chemical reactions have to function very effectively during the course of a day just to make the, the thing work. Very regularly I mentioned that after three years of studying physiology I came to the conclusion this thing can't work. It's too complicated. You know, and sometimes I'd come out of the lecture hall. Some of the lectures we had were at Middlesex Hospital in, in London which is on a, a fairly busy street. And I'd come out of the lecture hall onto the street and just sort of I think, people walking driving cars how do they do that <laughs> there's a sense of wonder like how do we even stand up that's amazing that we can balance these these heavy bodies on two flexible sticks and they don't fall over all the time it's incredible it's like it's a really strange design that amazing that we can stand up at all let alone walk let alone pole vault you know these kind of things so it's kind of amazing how, how well the body works at all to me so uh, that kind of contemplation of not presuming the body is this functional, comfortable um, process that's you and is yours, but rather this is a, a collection of, of you know, organic materials that come together and through some you know, extraordinarily intricate evolutionary processes can, we can see and hear and move and smell and taste and touch and think and remember. So that that compounded integrated quality is something you don't forget <laughs> it's not just here it's not just this it's coming together and so the fact that it comes apart it disintegrates then becomes much more obvious well of course how could it not how could it permanently stay together as a 
as a single you know, coordinated unit. How could it? It's, uh, it's crazy, it's ridiculous. So there are, there are many and various um, kinds of contemplations, death contemplations. If you, again, if you look in the, the Satipatthana Sutta, and there's many commentaries on that, the mindfulness, the foundations of mindfulness, both the Sutta itself is a short version and a long version in the scriptures, and then many, many commentaries on that. There's a lot of material, and the, the section on the contemplation of the body is the biggest of the, the four sections of the foundations of mindfulness. I don't know how it is in the northern Buddhist world, but in the foundations of mindfulness you have the first one is um, kayanupasana, contemplation of the body. Um, then vedanupasana, contemplation of feeling. The third one is chitanupasana, contemplation of moods and mind states. And then the fourth one is tamanupasana. Sometimes dhamma is taken to mean um, mind objects, um, but if it only meant mind objects, there'd be a, a very substantial crossover with chitanupasana. So. My understanding is that actually it's more like Dhamma with a, a big D, sort of contemplation of the whole process of the body and uh, uh, the mind in terms of Dhamma, in terms of fundamental reality, in terms of the, the laws of nature. So contemplation in terms of, of Dhamma. So seeing things with the eye of wisdom, effectively. That uh, is how I understand that, that fourth one. But the first one, Kayanupasana, the contemplation of the body, that's by far the largest of the four sections, and there's many and various uh, death contemplations uh, uh, in there, so you're very welcome to look up that material. Um, contemplations taking place in, in um, funeral grounds, watching bodies disintegrate, uh, rather like uh, the young Ajahn Chah was doing, sitting meditating all night in the burning ground, that, um, both to contemplate the, the breaking down of the body, but also confronting his own fear, not, not just fear of death, but fear of death by spook. <laughs> in Thailand, they've got a fantastic variety of different spooks and demons and ogres and nasty things. I think as, uh, as small children, you must be told lots of very frightening stories. <laughs> so uh, fear, of, fear of ghosts and spooks and demonic attack is very, very common in Thailand. So ordinary death would be like, okay, no problem. <laughs> to some extent, but like... Death by having your liver ripped out by some demonic ogre. Like. So that's the kind of thing that Ajahn Chah was afraid of. And when, when he heard those footsteps on the other side of his mosquito net, that was the kind of thing he was imagining. could feel this something just beyond the edge of his net that he couldn't see. So he yeah, kept his eyes closed. So fear of death, contemplating that, feeling that, knowing that is also part of that, that process, not just the actuality of death and how it gives a different perspective on our attachments, but also that fear element. And one of the, the last things I'd like to mention um, before we do walking meditation together is that often physical death is, is probably is a bit different in, in India and in, uh, in Asia generally, but in the West, ego death can be far more frightening than physical death. Like uh, for many, many people in the West, the, the idea of dying is sort of is off over the horizon, it's not really a, that, that big of a deal. And uh, you know, the painkillers uh, are so effective nowadays. And so people are not so um, fully and completely frightened or, or, or aware of the, the presence of death. 
as in the past in the West in particular. But ego death, being rejected, failing, um, being unloved, losing your followers on Facebook, uh, being, being rejected, your relationship breaking up, being fired from a job, losing all your money, those kind of uh, ego deaths are far more frightening and far more real. It's quite a long time ago now, 20, 25 years ago, the uh, psychology department at Harvard University did a survey on fear, what people were afraid of. There's six or 7,000 people they interviewed, uh, and they got a top 10 uh, of uh, things that people were, uh, are afraid of that came out at the end of it. And so number 10 on the list is something like having your house burgled and your possessions stolen. Yeah. Number eight would be um, being beaten up by an attacker or, and uh, having and serious injuries on account of that. Number, number six would be you know, your, your family being uh, attacked and hurt and, and uh, you know, your possessions stolen, your, your family members injured. Yeah, number, number four on the list is being murdered by an attacker. Number, number three would be your, your family being killed in a, a war and your country being uh, say, uh, invaded and taken over in, in a wartime. Number two on the list was nuclear war and the destruction of, of life on Earth. Number one on the list was fear of public speaking. <laughs> fear of public speaking. So more, worse than nuclear war and the destruction of life on Earth is me dying on stage. <laughs> so I thought, that's really interesting. <laughs> Number one on the list. Obviously, it's, the, it's, it's a bit of a self-selecting process. It's the kind of people that get interviewed by Harvard Psychology Department. <laughs> so who would they find to interview? But I thought, that's really revealing. Like, ab above yeah, your family being kind of raped and murdered and uh, your country being invaded and the destruction of life on, on Earth in a nuclear holocaust. Worse than that is like, me being up on stage and not knowing what to say or losing my place. Or, so that ego death. <laughs> I'm not sure how that survey would work in India or in, in other Asian countries, but uh, that in the West, that, that's a, a, a big thing. So all these death contemplations, it's helpful to include ego death <laughs> and ways of reflecting about the things that you lose or you're afraid of losing and that uh, just even say like being, just using the words of being rejected, uh, having uh, you know, people throw you out of your position in your workplace or being um, in an irreparable breakup of a relationship that those kind of ego deaths where what I had, what I am, what, what is important to me gets lost, gets, and gets taken away, gets broken. It's good to bring those to mind as well. <laughs> Even if physical death, you might feel, well, I'm, you know, the body lives, the body dies, you know, and so be it. But like, all my friends deserting me, you know, my, my family kicking me out, or uh, me being... Uh, uh, losing my license to practice as a, a teacher or a doctor or a, you know, my company going completely bankrupt because of some, some decision I made, um, then don't be afraid to bring those to mind as well. That, uh, death contemplations don't just involve graveyards and bodies falling apart. <laughs> it's also the graveyard of being unfriended on Facebook or losing your, um, your Instagram followers and such like. I don't have a social media 
presence, but uh, a lot of people I meet do. <laughs> it's very important to a lot of people. So death in social media being... being um, you, you can be killed on social media, you know, while your body is still happily breathing and eating it, but you can... You can be thoroughly mixed in the, the dimension of social media.